0: Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project Podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Jess Weiss, the publisher and co-founder of Tricks, where she looks after the magazine's commercial, editorial, and brand viability, strategic partnerships, and overall business strategy. A full-time strategist for Google's executive leadership development team, she leverages her organizational psychology background to steep Trix's editorial angle in research about media gender bias, stereotype threat, and the positive impact of visible role models on young girls and women. So please welcome to the show, Jess Weiss. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for being
1: here. What's the one thing you're most passionate about? I would say... In this day and age, it's really about giving women a platform to have a voice. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting time to be a woman today. We've seen these remarkable movements over the past few years, such as Me Too, the Women's March, and then that has had global reverberations. Uh, so I think it's a it's a really wonderful and interesting and challenging time to think about what it means to be a woman. Um, you know, we still have tremendous gaps of all kinds across the world, pay gaps, um, investing gaps, um, gender gaps in hiring, you know, positions of occupancy and executive um, leadership roles. But at the same time, I think more than ever, women and girls and allies are really raising their hand to say, let's change the dialogue. Let's change how we speak to think about and um, project power into the hands of women. So I'm very passionate about doing what I can through tricks and my, my work at Google to really elevate voices of women and girls around the world in a way that's empowering and uh, demonstrates their agency in a way that is not necessarily tied to their beauty or their looks, which I think has really been the traditional way that we've um, portrayed women in power.
0: So talk about how that relates to the work you do at TRIX.
1: So Trix um, has been my passion project and now official side hustle functioning small business that I run with my two founding partners and uh, about 100 freelancers all across the world. But it started from an idea a couple of years ago. Um, so as many things in life start as, um, Tricks started as sort of as a happy accident. I had been thinking about getting more involved in journalism, but you know, being really mid-career and quite advanced in my field, which is not directly tied to journalism, I didn't really know how to get in, right? I thought, well, I can't really go back and get a master's degree and start as an intern in the mailroom of CNN, that doesn't sound appealing. So I wonder if there's another entry point. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then one day on vacation, just right after Christmas day, a couple of years ago, I happened to be sitting by a pool On vacation with my family and my phone died so kind of being a busy-minded New Yorker I'm not very good at sitting still and doing nothing so I kind of scrambled to pick up the nearest reading material which happened to be a couple of magazines that I probably normally wouldn't have read Um, but because I had time to kill I picked up the first one and it was a typical women's fashion and beauty magazine Um, but the title on the cover really caught my eye it said how to have your best year yet how to kill it in 2018 And I thought, oh, okay, maybe fashion and beauty magazines are creating more content for ambitious hustling women. Maybe there's something in here for me. And I'll never forget when I opened up the magazine, the first article I saw in this section of how to have your best year yet was called an ode to liquid eyeliner. And it was like 250 words (laughs) praising liquid eyeliner's ability to disguise your hangovers. And so if you were running low on sleep or had been out all night partying, that all you had to do was swipe on this magical liquid eyeliner and all would be well in the world. And I just remember laughing and thinking like, okay, well, first of all, no judgment. I wear liquid eyeliner and I've been hungover before. So that's not really like a problem per se. But the fact that it's packaged as how to have your best year yet, to me just felt like an incredibly low bar and almost comical to think about. So you know it really that really stood out to me. Um, but I probably would have just set that aside and not thought twice about it because I'm so used to seeing women's magazines that really focus on this kind of shallow content, only talk about fashion and beauty and portray these really unrealistic standards of beauty through their models and their advertisements. But I happened to also pick up a men's magazine, a men's lifestyle magazine which I had never read before. And I opened the pages and was immediately blown away by the variety and depth and intelligence behind the editorial. There were articles on activism and politics and extreme travel and leaders in their fields. And the models were varied, you know, and didn't have these perfectly chiseled abs. And I just thought, wow, I want a magazine like that, but for me, for women. And does that exist yet? So that became the start of what turned into six months of R and D, um, talking with friends, family members, our network, and really trying to figure out like, does that kind of magazine exist for women? And what we found out was no, it didn't. You know, there are sort of some more truly feminist magazines like Glorious Items, Ms. Bag. And then, you know, Teen Vogue and Marie Claire have started to introduce articles occasionally that are more kind of political by nature. But there was nothing really like what I had seen in the pages of that men's magazine. So that um, became our idea to start one and make one. And here we are two years later. So how did you come up with the name Tricks? This is a fun one, too. Um, So a little trip through history to explain the origins of the name. Um, You know, my co-founder, Carly, our editor-in-chief, and I were for months batting around different names for the magazine. We had all kinds of names, but we really wanted to make it not feel so on the nose about empowering women. Like, we didn't want to use words like fearless boss babes or, um, you know, moxie or something that kind of was labeling the the fact that women had power, we really wanted to take like a show don't tell approach to demonstrating women with agency and power in our pages. And I can talk a little bit more about the the psychology behind that and why that's very intentional. Um, But we were sort of doing research and I was Googling things like, you know, words that aren't, aren't frequently used that refer to strong women. And I stumbled upon a listicle of like 10 different words. And one that stood out was editrix. And I thought, hmm, I've never heard that before. And when I looked up the definition, uh, it said that editrix was a female editor. And this took me then down a Wikipedia rabbit hole to figure out like, why have I never heard this before? And it turns out that any word in the English language that ends in T O R. Which there are quite a few of like reporter, litigator, administrator, doctor, creator, editor, aviator. Those are all technically the masculine forms of the word. So, you know, if you speak Spanish or French or some of the Romance languages, you, you'll notice there's a feminine and a masculine, like an L and a la version of the word. And in the English language, we've actually simplified that um, to exclude the tricks, which would be the feminine version of those words. So technically, it's correct to say Aviatrix tricks or report tricks or doc tricks. Um, and that refers to the female version. So we thought, huh, let's just call the name, of the magazine, let's call the magazine Tricks which really is a nod to agency and action. You know, all of those words have some sort of doing or verb or action attached to it. Um, and yet there are so many different possibilities for what a tricks can follow um, in that word. So that, that's sort of the origin. And we're certainly not trying to bring back, you know, people using words like ABA tricks or Report tricks. but it was a fun play on word and a fun sort of nod um, to, you know, to language and history and how we think about and talk about women.
0: Talk about the path that you and your partners took to actually get the magazine off the ground.
1: When we thought of the idea, it actually started as a conversation on a Facebook group. So I was part of this private Facebook group of like 400 mutual female friends. And I had posted about my experience of the Liquid Eyeliner article in the men's magazine and had posed a question to that group of, you know, does a women's magazine like what I'm describing exist yet? And a bunch of people chimed in and said, you know, oh, like the Atlantic or Nat Geo have some elements of that, but no one could point to a specific women's magazine that had the content we were envisioning. And my now co-founder at the time chimed in onto that thread and said, let's start one side hustle. But she always tells the story like she was very much kidding, like she was a joke, and I kind of took that and ran with it. And what's funny about um, Carly and our history is we happen to share an ex-boyfriend, um, so we knew each other sort of as the other woman for many years. And um, now we sort of have a laugh about that because our our now you know ex um, is a subscriber to Tricks, and he loves the fact that we started a magazine together. It's a very positive experience overall. But it was sort of a funny, um, you know, again, kind of repeat of her chiming in and sort of jokingly saying, let's create this magazine. And then a bunch of our other friends chiming in and saying, I think you should actually explore this. This is a really good idea. So once we had the momentum there, Carly and I started meeting regularly. Um, She also happens to work at Google. So it was easy for us to meet up over lunch and have a bite and shoot around some ideas. And what we decided to do to really test the concept was to do two things. We one held a series of focus groups all over the world, including a few in London, where we would get together kind of 10 to 15 uh, women, um, strangers usually, that we would just sort of promote this over our Facebook groups or Eventbrite. And we got them together and we would pitch our Liquid Islander story and our concept and said, you know, if, you, if we were to create the perfect magazine for you that felt relevant and interesting and engaging and really spoke to you like you were intelligent, which you are, um, what kind of content would be in there? And that was really fun because it got women really engaged in thinking about the possibility for content that would really resonate with them and speak to their more purpose-driven lives. And actually, a few of our articles that we ended up publishing in our first issue came from those focus groups. So that was kind of a fun way to really understand our readers before we had a product. And then the second thing we did is we wanted to understand the competitive landscape. So we actually hired a consultant to do some competitive analysis for us and what we found was just jaw-dropping. You know, he found that 95% of women's magazines on the market in the English language are fashion and beauty focused, and I was just shocked by that number. You know, I sort of had a hunch, but seeing the reality um, contrasted—you know, the fact that there were so few magazines targeted towards the many different things that women are interested in outside of fashion and beauty—contrasted with the excitement and the appetite we were seeing in these R&D focus groups. Um, to, To us, that felt like it was really clear that there was a need for this. There was space for this in the market. And all of that really pointed us towards the realization that this was a need. And then the next part became figuring out, okay, well, how do you actually make a magazine? And neither of us had experience doing that. So that's sort of a whole other chapter of the story as to how we sort of went about figuring out how do you find the writers? How do you create? the layout, how do you get people on board, um, you know, to subscribe before you actually have a product. So that part of the journey took a little over a year, but once we had decided, we had enough data and decided, yes, there's appetite for this, yes, there's a need and there's space in the market, it was just a matter of finding the resources and finding space in our schedule, you know, to to carve out for this on top of our full-time jobs. So the whole process, you know, from conception to launch of our first issue took about a year and a half. Um, And then of course, when the pandemic hit, we completely changed our business model. So I see this year as of last March as being kind of the third chapter in Trix's journey.
2: Tell us how has the coronavirus shutdown affected your business and how have you pivoted during this time? you know,
1: it's been challenging. I think that we're seeing all over the world, some businesses not being able to adapt because their model, you know, like co-working spaces, you see organizations like The Wing or Albright, you know, these women-focused co-working spaces, and their model is so dependent on in-person gatherings. It's been really challenging for them to, to pivot with all of that overhead. Um, for us, you know, because we are the perfect case example of a gig economy, you know, we we don't have full-time staff. We actually just hire out Um, individual gigs to freelancers, and because we don't have a brick and mortar space, everything is done virtually anyway. We didn't have that high overhead sort of uh, tying us down. And so what we really started thinking about when the pandemic hit is, okay, what are our readers going to need in this particular moment in time? And after serving, you know, a few folks and kind of batting around a few ideas, we really landed on the fact that, you know, most readers would be looking for information that was either relevant to their lives in the coronavirus um, and or distracting, but not too expensive. you know we when we first launched we had a really premium print product. Our magazine was beautiful thick coffee table style magazine that was like $15 and we thought hmm with all the economic uncertainty, some people losing their jobs, you know really trying to strip back spending people probably aren't going to be eager to spend $15 on an individual magazine. So how do we actually make a pivot to make Trix content more accessible to a wider audience and also affordable? So what that meant for us is actually um, going completely digital. So we no longer have a print product, at least for now, but what that's enabled us to do is to produce content on a more frequent basis. So rather than these quarterly issues, which we were publishing prior to the pandemic, we're now releasing new articles every single week and we're tapping into an international network of freelance journalists—people um, who write for, you know, the Times in London, or um, report on the region of West Africa for the New York Times, or report on border issues in South America for the BBC. You know, all of these journalists all over the world. Um, now we can access and say, "Hey, tell us what's going on in your part of the world." We can put that up on our website and actually move to an annual subscription plan. That's a lot more affordable than the individual magazine. So I think in a way, you know, I, I hate to say, <laughs> I hate to say that there's any sort of blessing from such a terrible global pandemic, but I do think in a way it was sort of the best thing that could have happened for our business in terms of what we're able to now produce and the readers that we're able to reach. That happened very quickly. That happened over the course of maybe a month or two. Um, but I'm very, you know, grateful to my team for being willing to say, okay this isn't what we had in mind when we started but this is what the time is calling for and this is what our readers need so let's just make sure that we're we're meeting those needs in this moment and we'll continue to watch the market and see how things change you know if and when we can come out the other side of this thing
0: that's great i do think there are going to be blessings like that on so many levels for people and the people who can adapt and change are the ones that are going to survive and thrive at the end of this you know so it's it's really great that you were able to do that
1: I agree. You know, one one thing just to build off of what you were saying there, we actually ran an interesting article on uh, the common factor that surprised us when we did research into what businesses were actually thriving and able to adapt, like is there anything that they have in common? And what we found was really interesting. You know, most women-owned businesses are small businesses. There are actually very, very few that have, you know, over 500 employees. Um, which is a gap in and of itself. But so we really looked at surveying women, um, women, uh, small business owners. And we found that the ones that are really thriving right now are meeting basic needs. So they're, you know, meeting people who are in a state of survival and they're doing things like, you know, whether it's food related or meditation focused for health and wellness or connecting people in some way to online communities. Those are the ones that um, people really you know, need products and services from. So to the extent that's helpful for any of our listeners out there, if you're thinking about pivoting your own endeavors, you know, really think about the fact that society is in survival mode right now, and how can you meet their most basic needs in this moment.
2: We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Jess Weiss. To learn more about Tricks Magazine, visit tricks magazinecom Now here's more of our interview with Jess.
0: You mentioned the global network of journalists that you're working with. How do you find the journalists that write for Tricks? And do you take contributions or pitches from women outside of that network that you
1: have? We do. So we, in fact, started finding all of our writers by posting to different Facebook groups that are designed for freelance writers around the world. So there are a couple, um, Binders Full of Writers is one that has kind of a fun name, and uh, the other is Study Hall. So these are listservs and Facebook groups that anyone around the world can join and are known to be sort of the go-to for sourcing freelance writers. And then in some cases, you know, we had our eye on particular writers that had a voice that felt very aligned with Tricks. you know, not just writing about women's issues, but also very solutions-oriented and can write in a very sort of elevated, substantive, intellectual way. So in some cases, we proactively reached out to writers and photographers whose work we admired. And in other cases, we would just post to these listservs and Facebook groups with an open call for submissions. And so uh, that has enabled us to basically fill out our editorial calendar, but we continue to accept pitches on a rolling basis. And you know, while we look to really go to seasoned journalists to help build our brand credibility and also just to make the editorial um, part of the process lighter on you know our very small team, we tend to go first for those more established journalists. But because we so much believe in elevating women and lifting women up and mentoring aspiring and emerging writers, we reserve about 25% of our stories for non-professional writers, you know, people who just do it for a hobby, for guest-authored op-eds, or for really the newer ones who are just trying to get their feet wet. And our editorial staff has a real passion for actually mentoring aspiring and new writers. So we do try to keep a little bit of room for those folks. And coming um, later this year, we'll be introducing storytelling workshops. So we actually can provide education and training for the newer journalists on the field while also producing that more kind of credible long form feature in investigative journalism.
2: So now is that mentoring in addition to the coaching and consulting kind of stuff you already do now? Tell us about those services. We have
1: not yet come out with our workshops. Um, We're kind of right in the middle of a planning mode to expand our business model. And um, since we've had to make this pivot, you know, away from in-person events, which we really heavily relied on, for for income and also just to build community and have moved away from this print product, we have to think about diversifying our revenue streams. So the plans that we have for that involve uh, what we call the three uh, Cs. So content, which is the magazine, um, coaching and community. So our coaching and consulting services will be um, expanding to go beyond just one-on-one coaching with one of the founders, which is what we currently offer and is quite a popular um, product that our our readers really enjoy. Um, But what we're going to be doing is announcing plans to expand our network of coaches so folks can tap into people other than just the founding team. And then also offer consulting services. So we would like to work with brands more in a B2B model who have an interest in speaking to their female customers in maybe a more elevated, empowering way. And so we're really eager to really help brands and other businesses um, rethink you know, how they approach their female customers. And then the community aspect, um, we are really moving towards sort of the courts model of building in member benefits. So anyone who subscribes to the magazine will also have access to online workshops for personal and professional development, um, group coaching. So, you know, coming together with maybe a group of 10 other women if they can't quite afford the higher premium individual one-on-one coaching. And then also access to speakers. So we've had some really great fireside chats with people like Sally Krawcheck, who is the CEO of Elvest, the first women-focused investing firm. We've also done great panels with senior editors from the New York Times and Vice and Huffington Post, teaching women who have expertise in their field how to turn that expertise into an op-ed and actually get published. And I was so thrilled to learn that after our last workshop on that topic last year, And three of those attendees actually had their op-eds published, uh, one in Newsweek, one in Project Syndicate, and one in Politico. So it's really exciting for us to see that this kind of training is working and helping writers and women to have their voice heard. So that will all be coming um, probably this July, but will offer us a way to just reach different readers and really elevate women in a more direct skill building and development kind of way.
0: While you've been doing this, you have also been working full time at Google. Tell us about your work there and tell us about how you do both of these things at once.
1: So my background at Google is in organizational psychology. So I am trained in social organization, psych, organizational psychology, which is essentially the study of how groups interact. So group dynamics, group behavior. And my team at Google really looks after development for our leaders and managers, and thinks about how to apply best practices in organizational development to support them in being good stewards of culture, in um, really bringing out the highest potential in their reports, in um, getting into sustainable high performance so they're not burning out. And so I'm really interested in things like unconscious biases and stereotype, and how you you can write an unbiased perf review especially for minorities, um, women, women of color, marginalized groups uh, that can be particularly impacted by these very invisible stereotypes that we tend to place on others. So a lot of my work is really focused on, you know, bringing down those invisible barriers that might be holding some back. And that links very nicely, I think, to our editorial angle for tricks. Now, in terms of um, balancing both, you know, I feel very lucky that, Our work is so distributed. You know, we have a small but mighty army of so many freelancers who contribute um, both to our editorial and also to the operations. So we have, um, you know, business associates, digital marketing folks, partnerships leads, um, and then a whole slew of advisors who really help us to uh, share the burden so it doesn't all fall on one person. So that makes it a lot more manageable. And then the other thing, which I'm sure you can relate to, is when you're really passionate about something, it doesn't feel like work. You know, I can happily spend my entire weekend and evening hours after I get done with my day job, you know, really diving into, you know, editing an article for tricks or, you know, sourcing new content because it's, it's just so rewarding. And so I think, you know, when, when you find something, it sounds very cliche, but I think it's true. When you find something that you really love, you know, it doesn't feel like you're working. It just feels like what you naturally want to, to do and the, the space that you naturally want to inhabit.
2: Is there something that you've learned while at Google that's helped you in building tricks?
1: The thing that's applied to to tricks most, I think, is how I've been managed by incredible leaders at Google. You know, I've had the privilege of working with some incredibly strong, intelligent, talented, mostly female managers who have really, you know, brought out the best in me, brought out the best kind of work in me, um, really set the bar high, but do so in a supportive way. So Um, The growth trajectory that I've been lucky enough to have in my career is really supported by really great leadership and a certain kind of way of speaking to and treating women. And I think we really try to leverage that in terms of how we speak to our readers. Um, You know, I'll give an example. So I actually hate the word girl power. And that might be a controversial statement. And And I actually don't like to use the word empowerment very often. And the reason for that is uh, because of this thing called stereotype threat. So the summary of that concept is, you know, there are certain stereotypes that are connected to aspects of our identity. And they're not obviously necessarily true. And many of them are harmful, but they tend to impact the way that we behave and think. So, for example, psychologists have studied this. For example, a stereotype that exists is Asians are good at math or African-Americans are good at sports or women are bad at math. And there are many different versions of those stereotypes that relate to talents and abilities. And what researchers have found is that when you remind someone of their identity and then ask them to perform a task that has a stereotype related to that identity, they perform better or worse than those who aren't reminded of their identity. So you know, if a woman takes a math test and is asked to mark her demographic before the math test and then is told, this is a test about your abilities in math. What happens is she thinks of herself as a woman, is subconsciously reminded of that stereotype that women are bad at math, and that increases her performance anxiety, which causes her to do worse on the test than if she didn't think about the fact she was a woman at all before taking the test. And um, research has shown that in those cases, those control groups, the women perform just as good, if not better. So all of that is a learning for me. And not speaking to women always in terms of them getting empowered because it implies that they don't have power and that they're always in the process of trying to find it. And while I think it's true that there are plenty of inequalities that we need to pay attention to and plenty of you know, rights and progress towards women's rights that still need attention, I think we also have to start to speak to women like they already have power. And to not constantly be reminding them that they can be fearless or that they can have power, that they can get empowered, but rather to assume that they have it. And I know that that's really worked for me in terms of how my managers and leaders have treated me as as a woman, you know, at Google. And that's what we really try to convey in the pages of our articles.
0: Is there a word that you prefer to empowered or just no word at all? We actually
1: take a show-don't-tell approach. So whenever we talk about or tell stories of these incredible women, you know, thought leaders or leaders in their field, I'll give you an example. We have an article on this ultra-marathoner, Pamela Reed, who's in her 50s or 60s now and has won several 135-mile ultra-marathoners, sometimes outpacing and beating male competition. It's just this incredible story. But, you know, I think a traditional media outlet would take an article and a person like that and talk about how fearless she was and how, you know, what a badass she is. And to me, that is almost, it almost works backward because it's, it's put, it's, it's like naming the thing. And just by comparison, like if you ever picked up a magazine about an ultra or man or, you know, a really great businessman, you don't see words like fearless boss bro. <laughs> Yet we see things like fearless boss babe or boss babe or girl boss, you know, all the time. And so I, I hope that makes sense. But for, for us, it's really important to just demonstrate how these women are remarkable and tell their whole story, including the challenges they faced, how they overcame adversity, how they overcame obstacles, um, rather than telling the readers that they're fearless or brave. Um, so it's, it's very subtle, but we think it makes a difference in terms of elevating the tone um, and how we speak about and to our female readers.
2: Is there a particular trait that you think has helped you succeed?
1: I always attribute um, my career success to, first of all, incredible opportunity and privilege. You know, I think it's important to name um, those things. But I also have really tried to adopt a growth mindset in everything I do. So Carol Dweck became very famous for this concept of growth mindset, and it's this idea that most successful people. Uh, don't think of themselves as ever really being done. You know, you never really sort of win or are best at something. Um, it's instead a mentality that you can constantly improve and constantly grow and constantly learn, and that failure is actually a natural output of those things. So I really try to think about an approach. You know, a situation like with tricks. I had never made a magazine before. I had no journalism background, but I didn't let that sort of get to be. Even though where like tons of well-meaning media veterans that I would have coffees with in those early days would really sort of subtly try to dissuade me. You know, like, how are you going to get a Journalism is a dying, print journalism is dying. You know, how are you going to make a magazine? You've never done this before. And, you know, we said, okay, those things might be true, but we know that we're resilient. We know that we love to learn. We know that we're passionate about this and we think we can figure out how to do it and learn as we go. So I think it's that um, not being afraid to fail, that's really allowed for us to learn as we go and then grow and pivot where we need to and not sort of being held back by this idea that we don't have experience or that we'll fail you know i see failure as as a sign that we're onto something and that we're we're learning you know as we go
0: what's your definition of success
1: i love this question because our magazine tagline for tricks is a magazine for women who define success on their terms And we came up with that as a way to, again, nod to women. You know, for me, have been so held back by standards of, you know, what others think they need to be to be successful. You know, whether that's being beautiful or thin or a mother or, uh, you know, a homemaker or someone's girlfriend. You know, there's there's so many expectations placed on women. You know, really around the world. And for me, the most liberating thing I think we can do for ourselves is to define success on our own terms. And to, you know, it doesn't mean becoming like a social recluse, but essentially saying like society and external validation isn't what I need to feel successful. You know, success for for me is based off of my values and what I care about and where I want to place my energy and time. So my definition of success is, of course, more personal than that. But I thought I'd just nod to the fact that you know, we really think that women should be defining success on their own terms. You know, whatever that looks like for them.
0: Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Jess Weiss. To learn more about Tricks Magazine, visit tricks-magazine.com. Please visit thepassionistasproject.com to learn more about our podcast and subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire you to follow your passions. Sign up for our mailing list to get 10% off your first purchase. And be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project Podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.